Well, we're going to be starting our series, which I've been really excited about, out of the book of Revelation. Who's excited about this? And we're going to be looking at the seven letters to the seven churches. You know, there's no, probably there's no other book in the Bible that has been interpreted so variously as the book of Revelation. And the visions of Revelation and the symbolism and the imagery have created, you know, so many schools of thought for end time teaching. But over the next few weeks, I don't want to talk about the future, but I want to talk about what God is saying to the church today. Many times you can just take Revelation and you can talk about end times. And, uh, you know, the church has always felt that they have been in the end time season. But not what God is saying to the church 10 years from now or five years from now, but what God is saying to the church today. What is the timeless message from the Lord Jesus to his bride in 2022? And I guess the point is this, and that these seven letters to these seven churches, though they were given by, to John by Jesus on the Isle of Patmos thousands of years ago, and they were written specifically to these churches in Revelation, there is a call that they are timeless. Revelation chapter 2 verse 7 says this, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. What is the Holy Spirit saying to the church today? What has the Holy Spirit said to the church over the last 2,000 years? And what will the Holy Spirit continue to say to the church long after we are gone? That is what we're going to have a look at over the next seven weeks. And you know, there are just some wonderful, challenging cultural lessons in church life that we can learn from these seven letters to the seven churches. And before we specifically look at the first letter, which is uh, to the church in Ephesus, I just wanted to give us some background on the challenges that existed for the local church when the book of Revelation was actually written. And there was a number of different challenges. Obviously, we know in the early days that the church was going through different seasons of persecution. Persecution wasn't always on the cards, but there were seasons depending on the emperor and the intensity of the persecution. But there was something that was cropping up when John was writing Revelation that had probably started maybe seven to ten years earlier, and it was certainly something that had ostracised the church. It was a source of persecution, and it was the introduction in society to this whole idea of cultish emperor worship. In other words, the emperor in those days, because they were so powerful and Rome had so much of a stronghold over the known world, the emperors started to see themselves as gods, as deities. And so they started to create this culture of people worshipping them. Now there's a coin, if we can put it up on the screen. Uh, there's a coin that they discovered many, many years ago. And it's a coin from the reign of Emperor Vespasian, which includes the abbreviation Pon Max, which basically means Pontifus Maximus or greatest priest. In other words, this particular emperor, he basically said to the world that he was the head of the state religion. Now, 100 years earlier, in, in 29 BC, a delegation from Asia Minor 
which is the same location where these seven churches were resided, had asked permission to set up the cult to worship Caesar as God and to make the emperors from that point onwards God figures in the ancient world. When Augustus died, one of the other emperors, the Roman Senate voted to deify him. And so his son Tiberius, who was actually the emperor during the ministry of Jesus, was called, they called him the son of God. The emperors also began to be known as the saviour of the world, the Lord and benefactors. A generation later, another emperor, Calua, proclaimed the good news that he'd been deified and because he was so feared that no one ever actually challenged it. So think about it. Here are these, these emperors saying, we're God, we're the son of God. And in that cultural environment, Jesus Christ, the true son of God, comes into the earth and immediately there is a significant cultural clash with society. What society actually thought was right and true. And so when the New Testament is written, and especially when Revelation is written, this imperial cult of emperor worship grew and grew and grew and did become a source of major conflict for the church. Now, the first letter written in the, in, the, in, the, in the seven letters was written to Ephesus. Now, that makes sense because Ephesus was located about 60 to 80 kilometres northeast from Patmos. And so it would have been the first location if the messenger would have grabbed the letter from John and sailed from Patmos, the first uh, location that he would have landed in would have actually been Ephesus. So it actually makes sense that that is the first letter. Interestingly... Ephesus was also the first city to build a temple for the worship of the emperor Augustus, just to kind of again reinforce this cult worship. The city of Ephesus actually built two temples. So the first one was to Emperor Augustus. The second one was in honour of the emperor Domitian, who was actually the emperor during the season that John actually wrote Revelation. And so Domitian was probably the leader when that was all happening. Now, Domitian named Ephesus the guardian of the imperial cult where Domitian would be worshipped as a deity. Now, I've got a photo here of, uh, we can have the next photo, I've got a photo here of, of Domitian. And uh, that, that's actually part of a really tall statue that Domitian made of himself in the town square, right in the centre of town to show people that he was a god and he was a deity that they should worship. Kind of so much for the emperor being eternal. <laughs> and his cult being eternal. Images may come and go, church. Kings will rise and fall. Governments will come and go. And no matter how much man seeks to exalt himself, there is only one true and living God. The Christians were on a collision course with a society that were creating this type of uh, atmosphere in the world. Now, the reality is the Christians didn't worship any of these other gods. They only worshipped the God of Israel, and that did create social issues for them. And one of the reasons was because emperor worship was so popular in those days, everyone wanted to be a part 
of emperor worship. I mean, there were benefits in worshipping the emperor. Rome made sure that that would take place. There was social acceptance. Well, everyone is doing it, so this is the norm, so why aren't you doing it? There were huge festivals in honour of worshipping these emperors. There would be food that would be sacrificed at these festivals to these emperor idols. And there would be heaps of food left over. And so there'd be free meat for the whole city to engage in. I mean, I mean who, you know, who doesn't want free meat? Free brisket. Free nine-plus Wagyu steak. So there was free meat. There was parties. Everyone was in on it. There was this cultural atmosphere that it was the norm to honour and to see these emperors as gods. And everyone got into it except the Christians. The Christians said, they're not gods. We can't participate. That's why Paul often talks about food, sacrifice to idols and so so forth. And so because the Christians didn't participate, they were seen as antisocial. They were seen as inflexible. They were seen as arrogant. Here's one that I've heard even in this generation. They were seen as being on the wrong side of history. Where is your patriotism? Where's your nationalism? We're all in this together. Where is your commitment to the nation and our way of life? You're engaging in behaviours because you're choosing not to honour these particular statues, that you're disrespecting the government. You're disrespecting the governor. You are causing division because you're not worshipping what we are worshipping. You're creating rebellion. This was a massive social issue in the world at that day, and the Christians said, we're not going to participate. And so they were seen as being significantly antisocial. You know, it's interesting that not long after the book of Revelation was written, maybe two decades later, Pliny, the governor of Pythinia, writes to the emperor Trajan. And he says, what do I do about these Christians? They're they're like a plague. He actually says that they're a virus. He says, they're like a virus. They're turning people away from us gods. They're turning people away from worshipping at the temple. And he says, I'm going to give them an opportunity to prove their loyalty to you, the emperor. All they need to do is to burn incense to you and they will live. But if they don't, they will die. And so for someone who was an unbeliever, it just seemed a logical choice. Just burn some incense and you're okay. But the Christian said, we cannot burn incense to someone that is not a God. We'll only serve the true God, the living God, the eternal God. And so... Pliny just saw them as being inflexible and arrogant. And so he just killed a whole bunch of them because he couldn't understand their loyalty to God. You know, when scholars talk about the background to the book of Revelation, this would have been a major a part of this. Let, let me just say one more thing about this background, which I thought was really interesting when I'm reading some of these commentaries. By the time John was writing the book of Revelation... The Roman Empire had been around for about 600 years. Now, there would have been about another 400 years before the fall of Rome, although Rome didn't understand it, didn't know it at the time. So that's a 1,000 years of Roman rule. That means the Roman Empire lasted longer, listen, than the British Empire, the Communist Empire, and the American Empire combined. And yet today, what still remains is not the Roman Empire, but the church of Jesus Christ. What remains today is the bride of Christ. Don't let anyone tell you 
that we are on the wrong side of history, that we are irrelevant, weak, insipid. God will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And I'm telling you, tell you, over the last 20 years, I've seen a shift in the media. Here's my little bugbear about the church being on the wrong side of history, that we're weak and insipid. Now the church has lasted some of the greatest, most powerful empires that the world has ever, ever created because regardless of what society says, God will continue to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. We're not on the wrong side of history. We are history and we are the future. And so even though this was happening in right across Asia Minor where all these churches were located, the church in Ephesus was actually handling this quite well considering all the pressure that they were under. And they're enduring hardship. They are handling the complexity of their social challenges really, really well. And the letter to the church of Ephesus actually attests to this. So let's read this in Revelation 2 verse 1 to 7. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and you've endured hardship for my name and you've not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I'll remove the lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Verse 7, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches and to the one who is victorious. I will give him the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So he's praising them for a number of things. The church is doing well in this social complexity and all the pressures for them to conform. They actually have got a resilience about them. They're, there's a strength of effort. They're, there's a persistence. Uh, the Bible makes mention here that the church is really, really good at discernment. They're dealing well with false teachers and false apostles. In other words, it's a church that is very well in tune with right theology. You know, false teachers often crept and came into the church and we see different examples of that, especially in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, verse 29 to 31. Paul warns against false teachers in the book of Acts. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number of men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I've never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Obviously false teaching was an issue in the church. Look, it still is in the church today. I think we've got to remember the difference between major false teaching and minor false teaching. What people wear to church is not major false teaching. The way that we worship said is, is it's got nothing to do with teaching. Major false teaching is whether Jesus Christ is the Son of God or whether he's not. That's, that's major false teaching, right? Um, and so it was rife throughout the church. I mean, 2 Timothy 1 verse 15. 
Paul mentions that he's abandoned. And uh, if we can just have that up there. You see, you know, everyone in the province, they all abandoned him. A lot of that had to do historically with false teaching. People were drawn into this whole false teaching and going down certain pathways. But, but this is a church that had become incredibly discerning when it came to false teachers and errors in teaching. He mentions the, the, the practice of the Nicolaitans, which, you know, we actually don't know what that means, but some would say that there was a lot of false teaching surrounding that. They were also really good in their discernment of dealing with false apostles. Now, obviously, they're not talking about the 12 original apostles, but the church itself had developed an apostolic ministry. And so other than the major 12, there were a number of other apostles. I think uh, uh, the Bible talks about James being an apostle. So there were a number of other apostles that were around in that, in that day. And, and the point is this. The church had worked out, had become very discerning who the true apostles were and who weren't. And, uh, you know, not just, just saying that I'm an apostle doesn't necessarily qualify you as an apostle. Many people go around and say, I'm an apostle, I'm an apostle, I'm an apostle. I, I always find it funny that I get... Facebook friend requests from people whose title begins with Apostle. <laughs> Apostle Harry wants to be your friend. Hmm. <laughs> Happened in Paul's day, it happens in our day today. Just the fact that someone calls themselves an apostle doesn't mean that they're an apostle. But there's actually an ancient... There's, a, there's, there's some ancient research that has been done about what the church would actually say was a true apostle. That's another thing for another day. So, so they were doing all these great things. They were fantastic in their teaching. They were phenomenal in their theology. They were discerning. They had a perceptive discerning spirit. They were resilient against this social structure that was putting pressure on the church to conform. But Jesus comes to them and he says, despite all of those things, he says, I have one thing against you. And he makes the point. He says, this one thing is serious enough for the lampstand to be removed from its place. You say, what does that mean? In other words, for them, for them to no longer be a church in God's sight. In other words, they can have the function of the church. They can have the people of the church. But if God removes his lampstand, they are no longer a church in God's sight. Can I just digress there for a few moments, right? You've got to ask yourself the question then, what is the church? If, if, if Jesus talks about removing the lampstand from the, where they no longer are a church in God's sight, but they're just another club, they're another organization, they're another social structure, what is the church? People often say, well, the church is the building. And we say, no, the church is not the building, the church is the people, Right? But is it the building? Is it the people? Is it the function? What is the church? Is it the outreach program? Is it the events? If we look at this scripture and say, what is the church? Well, the lampstand represents the Spirit of God. And it's the place where the Spirit of God operates and resides. And I would say that is the church. Yes, there are people in the church. Yes, there are buildings. Yes, there are programs. Yes, there is good theology. Yes, there is outreach. But we want to have the Spirit of God in our church. Holy Spirit. Being in a place where God ministers. Church, I never want to lose that. And I guess here, we go back to this passage. The one thing 
that has the potential to take the Spirit of God out of the church and render it useless. This one thing that Jesus says is serious enough to override all the other good that they are doing. What is that one thing? In verse 4, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. So what does that mean? Well, John is not really clear. Have they lost their first love for the Lord? I mean, that's my initial response. Have they lost their first love for one another? John doesn't tell us. He does expect the church at Ephesus to know. The fact that he doesn't bring clarity to that, they would have known exactly what he was talking about that. But, but if we were to look at other scriptures to see how the Bible begins to speak about the way that we should love, it's interesting the way that it all links together. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 to 21. John again speaks about this. He says, whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or a sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Jesus says of himself in John chapter 13, verse 35, he says, by this that everyone will know that you are my disciples if you want love one another. So John is talking about that the two are linked. You can't say that I love God, but I don't love people. The two are linked together. One affects the other. One challenges the other. The other. One impacts the other. Losing your first love in either of the sense, whether it's to God or whether it's to people, is serious enough for the Lord to take away the lampstand and for the church to cease being the church. Church is a dangerous thing for us. Maybe one of the problems that the church had, because it was the church of so many good works, maybe one of the problems the church has was that they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, but maybe their hate for things was greater than their love for other things. Sometimes we rightly hate that which is false. Sometimes we rightly hate those things that are hurtful to other people. But in our hatred of the works or the philosophies or whatever it may be that we hate, we seem to find that our hate of those things drown out the love for other things. We don't love enough. There are people today that are really good at discernment, but they're not so great with love. They're really good at theological error. They're really good at pointing out the errors of other people. They're really good at pointing out the faults of the world. But they're not so strong and loving and caring and being compassionate. I heard that Pastor Alan preached a phenomenal message last week. Jesus makes a statement about forgiveness. Matthew 18, verse 21 to 22. Let me just sidestep again. He talks about forgiving 70 times 7. In verse 21, then Peter came to Jesus and asked him, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times 7. Right? In other words, you just keep forgiving. Well, Jesus is also alluding to a passage in the Old Testament. 
And that, that phrase, 70 times 7, is only found one other time, and it's in Genesis chapter 4, verse 24. And it's talking about Cain's son, Lamech, who had the same lust and desire for revenge as what his dad did. And it says this in verse 24, is Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 70 times seven. So the point is this, is Lamech had the same desire for revenge, but at a greater capacity than what his father Cain did, right? And the contrast that Jesus is making makes sense. Just as Lamech was vowing a punishment that would exceed the crime because his desire for revenge, we should always allow our forgiveness to far exceed anything else that has been done in our lives. And that our desire to forgive should always be greater than our desire for revenge. I find in the world today that people are so ungracious of the things that have been done wrong in their lives. These days you can get in trouble just for having the wrong tone. Say one word wrong and all hell breaks loose. Church, we are not called to be like the world is. We're called to be different. Our desire to forgive, our desire to love, our desire to show compassion. Listen, should far outweigh anything else that has happened in our lives. This is what Jesus is saying to the church. Let your love for people, your compassion, your desire to do good far exceed the, the desire to do right, the desire for revenge. How do we do this? If this is so important, how, we do, how do we do this? Well, if you look what the Bible says, he says, consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove the lampstand from its place. In other words, in other words he says, go back to what you were when you first encountered Jesus. Go back to that place when all you desired to do was good because you remember what Jesus Christ has done for you. See, I think one of the great challenges in the church today is to remember the day that we got saved. The day that we knew our sins were forgiven. That we no longer become familiar with that. But this gracious appreciation of what God has done in our lives, that in itself has great power to bring love and graciousness and forgiveness in all the other areas of our lives. Do you remember? Do you remember when you first got saved? Married couples, do you remember the bride of your youth, the husband of your youth? We've been away for two weeks. We're a week in Queensland. We celebrated our 28th year anniversary this year. First holiday without the kids. I love my kids. I think my kids are just unbelievable. The way they serve in the house. What God has called them to do, you know, even if they didn't serve in the house, just the fact that they are people that just love God. I've always said to my family, love God and love the church. Love the bride. Love God and love the bride. Right? Love my kids. Love my family. Happy to come home and just love them. But hallelujah, church. 
There is nothing like going away with a bride of your youth. <laughs> no one else around. Long breakfasts, walks on the beach, conversations that are not interrupted. Do you remember? Do you remember? The day you gave your life to Jesus? When it didn't matter what the world did to you, he had saved your soul. Who much is forgiven, much is required. There is a responsibility on us as the church that the greatest thing that should come out of our lives is our love and our compassion for other people. And I think one of the great challenges in modern days is that church has been known more for what they're against than actually more for what they're for. We may be against some of the ways that society is handling life, but we can be committed to loving people. We can be committed to loving people. I'll be honest, I've said this a few times, I was surprised during COVID about some people that I'd known for many years in the life of the church, their lack of grace during the COVID season. I don't care about your theology, I care about the way that you treat people. And here we see Jesus coming to the church and saying to them, listen, you gotta understand the power of your first love. And this is what he says, he says, this is their test. Over the next seven weeks, you're going to hear about the different challenges that each church had. But for the church of Ephesus, this was the one they had to conquer. They had to come overcome this one. You know, each of the seven churches are called to overcome. Some were all called to overcome by being faithful to death. Some were called to overcome by getting rid of false prophets in their midst. But this church was called to overcome by regaining their first love. And if they do that, God gives them this promise that they will eat from the tree of life, which we know from Revelation 22 basically means that they'll be living eternally before the Lord. When I read this, let me finish with this one last phrase. I want the musicians to come. When I read this in Ephesians, uh, in Revelation chapter 2, the letter to the church in Ephesus, love is a non-negotiable in the kingdom of God. It is church, it is a non-negotiable. You can't, sometimes we excuse it by saying, well, we'll do all these other things. You get back to this one here. It is a non-negotiable. No matter what people have done to us, no matter how we've been hurt in life, it is a non-negotiable in the kingdom of God. We've been called a forgiven love beyond what the world has ever seen. Let's be a church that's like that, amen? Let's be a church that's like that.